The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Welcome to Sportbox. Here are your headlines today. China's post-COVID recovery stalls further as services activity expands at its slowest pace in five months. Meanwhile, Beijing vows not to be squeezed out of the global semiconductor production line after limiting exports of key materials, saying it would no longer exploit its own resources, only to face U.S. restrictions. The race to claim the upper ground in China's EV sector, well, sparking into life, isn't it? What a battle as Tesla and BYD report record Chinese deliveries in the second quarter. Elsewhere, though, well... Look at this. This is fascinating. Brent prices are now pulling back ahead of today's OPEC seminar. This despite the fact we've now had extra Saudi and Russian cuts flagged. That failed to spark a price rally amid warnings of Chinese demand and rising rates. Stateside markets prepare to reopen for trade following the 4th of July holiday, with investors awaiting the latest minutes from the Federal Reserve's decision to pause. We start out the day with a deep dive into the China market yet again as the mainland market is still showing us that it's very stubborn around this reopening theme. Many had expected a much stronger series of data to cross and that's just simply not what we're getting. The services activity in China softened in the month of June. The Cajun services PMI coming in at 53.9, the slowest expansion in five months as weaker demand and higher inflation weighed on the sector. That said, it's still expansion and don't forget we've been weathering some weaker numbers over here in Europe at this point. So take that with a grain of salt. But uh, the Asian markets and how reacting, we've got uh, Japanese stocks uh, setting up for a second day of declines. Four tens down at this point. Hong Kong is uh, down 1.4%, 19,147 at this stage. A modest drop for the Shanghai Composite. Don't forget we had a slight build-up the previous month, a uh, rally with other global markets. As investors just wondered whether they've seen most of the downside risk already priced into the market at this stage as they weigh up whether the economy can start to improve in the second half. The Australian market seen as somewhat of a proxy for China, trading down about a third of a percent. Uh, with that note, let me toss out to Sam for more. Sam, we're getting used to the string of bad data out of China. Just put this one into context for us. Thanks, Karen. Well, as you said there, we've got a reading of 53.9. So at a headline level, that is comfortably above the line that separates expansion from contraction. But if you look at the overall trend, it is a considerable slip from what we saw in May at 57.1. And it's actually a five-month low. So that takes us back to January when COVID was running rampant in China and people weren't going out. They were essentially locked down in their homes. It's also consistent with the trend that we're seeing in the official numbers as well, which we got out earlier in the week of 
course. This survey today looking at the smaller and private firms over in China, but the bigger and state-owned firms are also feeling the same. We got a reading of 53.2. So while overall the services sector has been holding up a lot better, uh, we continue to see the softness coming through, um, which is interesting, particularly when you look at the concerns that the government has at a time when they are relying on the Chinese consumer to mitigate some of those softer exports. Now, when you look at this data, it did show that business activity in those new orders softened from May. However, it wasn't all bad. Actually, if you take a look at uh, some of the details in this survey, some of the takeaways were quite interesting. These uh, companies continued to benefit uh, from the revival that we've seen uh, in tourism and travel. Of course, we've got to remember this is capturing the Dragon Boat Festival, even though uh, the consumption numbers were still disappointing from that long weekend. Um, The other thing that was interesting was the employment gauge. This is something China's watching very closely because um, they are trying to stabilise the labour market. That actually improved. We saw the best reading in around three months. That's important because the services sector makes up for around 60% of the Chinese economy. It is a very big generator of jobs. However, if you look at it in the broader context, it is still relatively mild. So there are still a few uh, concerns there. Very surprisingly, what this survey told us was that business confidence continues to strengthen. It actually improved uh, in terms of the 12-month outlook. And that's particularly interesting uh, given when you look at the manufacturing survey, which was telling a completely different story. Actually, business confidence there was at an eight-month low, which takes us back to before China dismantled these very harsh COVID curbs. Now, the reason they put this down to um, the, the rise in confidence was because of um, their expectations around economic conditions stabilising and getting better in the second half. So there is certainly optimism around uh, the services sector moving forward, um, particularly off the back of a lot of these expectations that we will see more stimulus. Now, so far, uh, we haven't seen a great deal coming from the Chinese authorities. We were actually speaking to Isaac Poole uh, in Capital Connection, uh, who said that they're only achieving uh, or looking to achieve 5% GDP growth. So these numbers don't look too hot or too cold, you could say, uh, and they're probably not looking to open the floodgates at this stage. They're probably okay with these numbers. They'll see how things go over the next few months and if we see any sort of degree of stabilisation. However, the next thing to look out for, certainly in terms of the policy signals, are um, any signs we get from that Politburo meeting later in the month from the authorities. Back to you. Um, Super-duper analysis. Thank you very much indeed for that, and we'll see you, of course, a bit later on, hopefully. Uh, companies are rushing to secure key uh, semiconductor material supplies after China moved to put curbs on exports of two key metals yesterday. Uh, the move was largely seen as retaliatory measure over a US-led blockade on shipments of key technology to Beijing. It comes ahead of a state visit by the US Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen tomorrow in what will be the second trip by a cabinet official to China since ties between the world's top two economies deteriorated earlier this year. Uh, An editorial published in the Chinese state media said the country would not be passively squeezed out of the global chip supply chain. Well, that's an interesting comment. Uh, It described export controls of some gallium and germanium uh, products as a, quote, practical way of telling the US and its allies that efforts to curb China from procuring more advanced technology was a miscalculation. Well, 
Again, some of my reading says that China is so far behind the United States and its allies in, dare I say, advanced semiconductor manufacturing that actually, dare I say, it's self-defeating for everyone when you can't get the raw materials to go to those uh, US companies, to the foundries in Taiwan, to Samsung and others as well, because if they can't manufacture the chips, then the Chinese can't grow their industry as well. It's self. It's 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 a bit like mad, you know, the, the um, assured self-destruction for both parties as well. If you limit the supply of the underlying rare earths, then uh, the chips can't be built, and then China can't fuel its industry. Yeah, don't forget that it's a silver that's been fired here. There is uh, effectively an extra layer of bureaucracy around permits and licenses here. Doesn't mean there will be a restriction, but there is an ability to restrict. Uh, and I think we're looking at the US playbook where there was a license that was issued and then there was a restriction. So let's just see what the Chinese do with what they've issued uh, in terms of a, a response to the Americans here. Now, the Biden administration is reportedly preparing to restrict Chinese companies' access to US cloud computing services. According to people familiar with the matter, speaking to the Wall Street Journal, the new rule would require cloud service providers like Amazon and Microsoft to get government approval before providing cloud services that use advanced AI chips to Chinese cars. Customers. This was thought to be one area where there could be some circumventing of the rules to get access to those chips. Let's get to Rebecca Harding, who is independent trade and political risk specialist at Senior Fellow, British Foreign Policy Group. Rebecca, thank you very much for joining us again today. We're just pointing out that uh, this seems to be a ratcheting up of tensions again between the United States and China. This latest uh, move by the Chinese seems to be, according to some, in response to the Dutch lobbying that uh, ban on sensitive chip equipment. What do you think this marks in terms of the Chinese approach now when it comes to the semiconductor market? So um, it's it's really interesting because we've been waiting for this to happen. Um, so these special licenses on gallium and germanium, I mean, this is important because they don't just affect semiconductors. This is um, high speed, high frequency semiconductors, radio communications, radars and so on. Um, and the other important thing is that it's all, they also have very high levels of heat resistance. So they're used in missiles and things like that. The, the actual coating of gallium and germanium is used in missiles missiles as well. So what it's doing effectively is it's weaponizing that rare earths and critical minerals supply chain. And, and yes, um, you're absolutely right. It, it is an element of mutually assured destruction because you can't manufacture chips if you haven't got the supply chains. But these export controls are going to be fairly limited. Um, and you can see them as retaliatory for all the other activities that, um, that the United States and, and the Netherlands and so on. We've all been thinking about export controls on China, because effectively, this is how we're trying to constrain Chinese power. And why have we been expecting this? Well, actually, this happened in 2010 and again in 2014 around the Senkaku Island disputes as well. So China limited its um, its um, supplies of rare earth metals to Japan, and Japan has actually since then had to build its own capabilities. So, Rebecca, if we think about what comes next and where we go to from here, we've got Janet Yellen uh, going to be in China having negotiations. There's concern about what's been playing out geopolitically with the mutiny in Russia recently. How do we piece together ge the geopolitical events and whether there could be any rowing back from the current situation? 
I think it's very unlikely that there will be any imminent rowing back from this sort of effective, I mean, economics is a domain of warfare. If you think about what's going on at the moment, um, geopolitically and geoeconomically, we've got a geopolitical conflict in Russia. It's it's kind of fairly standard. It's traditional. It's using conventional means to do that. And we've got this nuclear sort of Damocles hanging over us, which means that a lot of weapons that have been available to the West have been um, technological, financial and trade ones. And China, of course, doesn't represent a military threat so much as an economic threat. So we've got that economics coming into all of this geoeconomics so that effectively, because of the tools that are being used, we've got economics almost as a domain of warfare now, as a sixth domain of warfare. Um, and I can't see this actually abating anytime soon because the whole idea at the moment, and we've got debates around decoupling, which Janet says, Janet Yellen says is ridiculous. Um, you know, this is all about how we manage our supply chains and actually in the end make supply chains resilient. Um, Rebecca, really great to see you again, uh, turning your hand to China this morning. Um, look, uh the thing about rare earths is that, that, that some people say to me they're not actually that rare. It's just that actually where it is palatable politically to produce these as well. And the Chinese, of course, have left stringent, perhaps, uh, production criteria than other places in the West as well. Why can't other countries just ramp up their production? I appreciate it can't be done overnight. And I appreciate the kind of numbers we're talking about with the Chinese producing a vast amount of gallium, for instance, compared with anywhere else in the world. But they can be produced and extracted elsewhere, can't they? They can absolutely, and it, it, if you look at Vietnam, for example, it's actually it actually accounts for something something like um, thirty six compared to China's thirty three percent of of lithium exports. So um, Vietnam is actually a big player in this market. Now we could all start buying our stuff from Vietnam, but the problem is it isn't processed. So um, it's it can be mined but not processed, and a lot of the technology that's needed to extract um, the 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 minerals from um, the ores is actually very, very complicated and also environmentally disastrous. So there are a lot of infrastructure investments that need to be made in order to transition and a lot of sort of if you like almost sacred sacred cows that need to be slaughtered in order to understand that we are going to have to incur some environmental cost to all of this it is just going to take a long time i mean if you look at u.s relations with with um south america they're beginning to be built around um rare earth metals as well because chile is a big producer canada australia japan they're all big producers and of course russia has actually been growing its rare earth metal exports at a rate of 75% a year for the last five years. So it's a smaller player, but it's still very important. Rebecca, let's move on from uh, MAD or Mutually Assured Destruction, which you and I have both referred to, and talk about actually what China's aim under Xi is, and that is to try and match the West uh, supply chains, try and match the United States in high-end chip production. They are light years away from doing that at the moment. They haven't got a handle on EUV. They haven't got a handle on GPU, uh, let alone CPU as well. Uh, are they ever, can you see in the short to medium term, and I say I've gone from ever to short to medium term, get anywhere near the US and its supply chain for matching them for chip production? I think it's it's a work in progress, as you say, and I think it's unlikely in the short term that China will get anywhere near the United States in that high end production. And its focus has always been on this mid tier. It is still a middle income economy and a lot of its economic problems at the moment are 
it trying to avoid that middle income trap of low low productivity and 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 sort of um investment um, flagging as well. So China has its own economic problems. It makes a lot of noise around technology and always has done. And in a sense, this is a a reaction in the West to a perceived threat, a threat in the future, constrain the power now, because China is seen as, as, as having intentions and and also threatening US dollar hegemony and so on. So it's it's actually a much bigger picture than just semiconductors. Rebecca, can we just make the bridge across to artificial intelligence, though, which has been one of the big themes for markets as China tries to to beef up its position in this trade fight? Where does that leave China as we talk about the race towards AI and generative AI in particular? Well, so China at the moment um, is a big player in the AI market, uh, the United States as well. We're all struggling to understand how a AI actually fits together um, and how where it plays and where the regulations should be. China is actually because because it already has significant state control, and this 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 then starts to become geopolitical because it already has significant state state control over the way in which its technology is evolving and the strategic role of that technology as well. It means that China actually, funnily enough, has more regulatory control over the way in which AI develops compared to a free market model. Now, we could talk for hours about whether or not an autocracy or a dictatorship is actually better to manage these things and regulate these things. But there are differences in the way these are being structured and and, you know, markets um, will be getting very tense about whether this is actually beginning to create Two, two internets around the world, two AI systems around the world. And that could become very worrying in terms of the way in which we fight wars in the future. Uh, all of the above. Rebecca, look, I mean, as much as I love Eastbourne, it's one of my local towns as well. Um, we need to get you up to London as soon as possible. So when can we get you up to London, Rebecca? <laughs> Whenever you want. <laughs> I'll see if the car company can afford it. Uh, lovely to see you. Okay, I always enjoy your company. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. Uh, Rebecca Harding, independent trade and political risk specialist, uh, senior fellow of the British Foreign Policy Group, uh, joining us from Eastbourne. Do you know Eastbourne? I do, no, I do, yeah. Have you been there? I think You're so. more of a Brighton fan, aren't you? I do like Brighton, but I do like the whole coastline. So. They are both magnificent East Sussex towns, of course, not yeah. that I'm biased. Mm-hmm. Uh, right, uh, let us move on. China has cancelled a visit uh, next week by Europe's top diplomat, Josep Borrell, according to an EU spokesperson. China said the proposed dates were, quote, no longer possible and would need to reschedule. Uh, but refused to provide a reason for the cancellation. Borrell was due to visit Beijing on July 10th to meet his Chinese counterpart. Coming up on the show, China's electrification drive goes up a gear as two of the biggest names report record EV deliveries. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music and Google Podcasts.
Are you aware of Sheen? Has it of penetrated course. your household? It hasn't penetrated, but it is one of the biggest apps in the United States, one of the top well, five apps. It appears apps. to be one of the biggest apps in my household as well, and I've never ordered <laughs> anything from them. Well, saying the other way, it's, it's the opposite of all the trends we've been talking about, fast fashion. Yeah. We thought we were stepping away from that model to more sustainable future no, in fashion. And this believe. is actually the opposite I, of all of that. With all due respect to my um, millennial friends or my gen whatever they are, I don't believe a word of it, that they're, they're giving up fast fashion and that the, the youth today are more responsible about it. They, it, it. It plays the same role that Amazon, Next and, and, and the like play in my household, I'm afraid. Lots of deliveries and lots of stuff going back and forth. For me, it's a Primark pricing product. I mean, it is so yes, cheap, right? Yes. It is uh, even lower than, say, an H&M. So it comes at the market at a very interesting time. I think uh, the explosion of this app really as uh, people have been battling the cost of living crisis and it makes product affordable. You can see why it's popular. I hear you. Yeah. Well, as the aforementioned Chinese online retailer, Sheen, uh, it's pronounced Sheen, but spelled Shine, uh, is reportedly still in talks with the NYC and the NASDAQ about an IPO, despite denying the story last week. The fast fashion firm no alliteration there, is in discussions with at least three major investment banks, although the timing is unclear and it may not be in the near future, according to Reuters. Sheen, which has come under scrutiny for its labour practices, is valued at more than $60 billion. Now, here's a story we've been covering various aspects the last few days, but there's another leg to it here. Tesla and BYD both saw record deliveries of their China-made EVs in the second quarter. Data from the China Passenger Car Association showed Tesla sold more than 93,000 vehicles made in China in June, almost 20% up on the year and almost 250,000 in the quarter. The rival, which we talked a lot about, BYD, Chinese rival, delivered just over a quarter of a million EVs in June alone, a surge of more than 88%. You are very animated by this story. Yeah, I think it's a fantastic one. I mean, we're looking at Tesla sales in China because this is a story, don't forget, where it's got a lot of inventory. It needs to move that inventory and the Chinese market needs to execute. By numbers, it is still being well and truly outpaced by BYD. The, the 93,000 plus that Tesla is making in the month of June or delivering versus the 261,000 odd that you're seeing from BYD tells you just how big a player BYD is versus Tesla. So well and truly outflanking the competition is what BYD is doing in China. In terms of stimulus, there is support here and the government sees the EV market aligned with some of its expansion strategies. 71-odd billion dollars worth of tax breaks on new energy vehicles right out of 2027, so the government stands behind the sector. I think what the difference is here, we talk about the US market and the Chinese market, great difference though in where they're at in terms of uh, what just uh, 7% of sales last year in the United States for EV products of the overall market, just 7%. So all the discussion we have about the new players coming to the market, it is still just considered a very niche product in the United States versus China where these uh, cars, these so-called plug-in new energy vehicles account for 27% of sales over the course of last year. So very different stages as we talk about maturity in the market. And this is instrumental around the price wars. So, you know, Tesla obviously moved to cut the prices. That has a very different impact in a, a startup market, a niche market like the United States versus a more mature market like China. And no doubt that there is a battle to try and gain that or retain market share in China as everybody reduces those low end models and makes it more competitive. I think there's a couple of things. One before I get to a chart, so hold off for that moment. But, but I think actually very interesting that once again, we're talking about a battle between China and Tesla. We're not talking about all those other 
plethora of European and US manufacturing. I think that's very interesting. So the second point I want to raise is I just want to move it on slightly to a different angle. And I want to show you this. This is a copper chart. Now, why am I talking about copper? Because copper is Dr. Copper. Uh, and uh, my friends over at Longview Economics have been doing a lot of work on copper and copper demand in China. Uh, and, and all the viewers know that um, we talk about copper, we talk about it as a, um, an industrial material, uh, as a part of electrification, a part of building materials. So we look at that as part of, oh, the property market. We look at it as the industrial market. And look, copper has, a, I think it's fair to say, has fairly aggressively come off from its peak at the end of 2021, start of 2022, with a bit of a rally and then a decline yet again. So the barometer that is copper, we can come off that now if you like. The barometer that is copper, thank you, Will, uh, is very interesting. But they've been doing a lot of work on various bits of the supply chain for copper into China over at Longview Economics. And I think this is interesting. Last year, 34% of cars sold in China, come back to your point, were EVs. Now that's huge. 34% of cars sold in China were EVs around 7 million EV vehicles, compared to 5% circa in 2019. The Chinese have got a target of getting to 40% of sales of EV by 2030. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, they're there, aren't they? I mean, let's put it, 35% now, they're going to get to the 40%. It's almost inconceivable they won't, uh, you know, with various slowing factor. But here's the interesting thing. Given that EVs use six times more copper than a conventional car, and assuming that remains largely constant over the coming years, the team over at um, Longview Economics have said the transportation sector will be the dominant driver of Chinese copper demand growth by 2040. Now, this is huge, mm. and I don't want to underestimate this, so thanks to the team. Again, I'll just make sure they know that I'm using their material and it's named Longview Economics. So if we're going to see a dominant increase of the EV sector, voraciously consuming copper, this will grow, wait for it, by 200% between 2020 and 2040, from 1 million tonnes of annual demand to 3 million tonnes, equivalent to a 6.7% CAGR, which is a compound annual growth rate. I find that extraordinary statistic. If I can dovetail off the back of that, uh, Wall Street Journal had a terrific report on this. They were talking about the difference between a niche and a mature EV market. The niche market in the United States, you get price cuts in electric vehicles. It doesn't really do much for the traditional car market because they're not competing in the same space. You get a more mature market like China where you've got, uh, I've got 27%, you said a number post 30% of sales. That means when you get price cuts in the EV market, it does actually take on the traditional gasoline market. You do see that competition between the two parts yes. of the car market. So there is actually a genuine impact now from what BYD, Tesla, some of the competitors are doing in terms of encouraging people to switch from what they would have made as a gasoline car, an ICE engine, to an EV. So you are seeing that rapid change. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show weekdays on CNBC.